You, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. On today's episode of the Salt and Dirt Podcast, we have author Paul Haddad. We'll be talking about his latest novel, Paradise Palms. I'm your host, Kyler Bingham. Thanks for listening. Paul, thank you so much for um, joining me today um, on this episode. We're talking about your book, uh, Paradise Palms, which is a pretty recent release, and I I really enjoyed it. Um, it's kind of a an era in Hollywood that I that I like I love reading about, and I just felt like I know the, I know the spots that you're talking about. Um, I was actually just I was staying in East LA. Um, like two or three months back and it just kind of like I was having these really strong visuals I know of like what it made have might have looked like um the book takes place in the late 1950s so it was really cool um to read it so yeah thank you for being on the show thank you I'm glad you enjoyed the book and uh, I concur with you it's a fascinating era yeah definitely so I guess I guess my first question is where did you um come up with the idea for it like what made you think about writing about this specific time period in, in Hollywood and then kind of the um the subject matter of uh the mob kind of infiltrating some of these uh mom and pop shops or businesses yeah you know the idea came about as sort of a confluence of ideas I think it started with the fact that I wanted to write an ensemble piece of characters who are probably of the same family I ended up writing about four brothers and like this half sister of this, uh, you know, Jewish patriarch uh, family in Hollywood who may have some shady background of his own, the father. Um, but the, the spark of it was to explore the dynamics between the family and the siblings. And then I kind of married that with Hollywood in the late fifties, because that was a time of dynamic change. And I wanted to see how this family would react to that because that was kind of the end of innocence in a lot of ways. Uh, for Hollywood, it was, as you mentioned, these mom and pop businesses were starting to, it was the beginning of, of the malaise of Hollywood Boulevard and these businesses going out of business or having to move to the Valley. It was the era when the major film studios like Disney and uh, Warner Brothers and others were moving to the Valley just to have bigger lots and, uh, NBC closed up in the early 60s. And it was a time when Hollywood, like Los Angeles, was undergoing change. And so I kind of married those ideas. And then the third thing that informed the idea was, I always wanted to do a book set in a hotel, mm. which sounds bizarre. But I just, I think that came about from my childhood when I would take the school bus from Brentwood to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And I did that all through middle school, or we call that junior high. And uh, this was, we're talking the, this would be the late 70s, early 80s. And I would roam around the hotel waiting for my mom to pick me up. And she'd sometimes be an hour late <laughs> running errands, I guess. <laughs> so that just kind of became immersed in my memories and, and writing about the hotel with this family running the hotel set in late Hollywood. It all just kind of came together that way. I love it because I, I mean, I have a fascination with hotels too. I love, like, I always have this like romantic, romanticized idea of like, wouldn't it be great to live in a hotel? Um, but that's from like a, an era long ago that that's a, like a good thing to be living, <laughs> living in a hotel. Um, 
yeah. but I, yeah, I, I love the idea of a hotel and that's why it was so cool for me to read about this, this era. Um, and then going back, that's so cool. You grew up out there and then you, uh, you were able to kind of kick around the Beverly Hills hotel as yeah. a child. <laughs> it, it was very bizarre. I mean, obviously if there were, if there were actors, I didn't recognize them other than I remember, um, uh, Bob Denver Gilligan. I saw him in there once, yeah. you know, these, these are the things that a 14 year old would recognize these, these kind of actors. Um, but I would sometimes go to the pool and I would wait for my mom to pick me up in front of the Howard Hughes bungalow. I only realized later that was the bungalow that he liked, right? You know, it's off Crescent Drive. <clears throat> so yeah, I was experiencing the history without really realizing it. Um, and then also setting a hotel in Hollywood or really any era, but Hollywood in the late 50s, it allowed me to explore the shift in society that was going on at that time, all under one roof, because there's a TV in the lobby that is airing the news you're seeing the Soviets launching Sputnik and the Cold War is, is upon us. And that was, again, kind of the, the end of innocence that Americans were experiencing. And you get to see the reactions of the hotel guests watching the central TV in the lobby. And so the hotel provided different ways to basically shed some light on what was going on in the larger picture outside the hotel. And you also saw that by the guests who were coming and going. And of course, the mob, kind of like L.A. gangland trying to take over the hotel. And uh, that was something that Los Angeles was dealing with as well at the time, which was corrupt police working with the mob. Uh, but uh, Chief uh, William um, Parker was trying to clean it all up. And Mickey Cohn still kind of was in his last few days of relevancy. And, and that was experienced in the hotel as well. So it was a good way to set it somewhere where you could experience the whole panorama of what was going on at that time yeah and even i mean i was kind of i was just flipping through the book earlier today at work just refreshing my uh, memory on it and it's like you you cover a lot of different things i mean it's packed in there you have like it touches on like the civil rights uh era so there's like so many different things um all the stuff that you just said sputnik the mob um you know these this family has um an interesting situation where they have a a sibling that they didn't know about and then there's some stuff there that um you know complicates it so a lot of like fascinating like elements and i think that that's so cool that you were able to hit the idea of a hotel because it's just so plausible and so it just it just is smooth and it and it's um you know it's there's so much packed in there but it's not shoved at you so i thought it was like a brilliant way to to unfold that story so thank yeah, you really cool yeah. Um, I guess like connecting to that, I would like to ask, uh, if you don't mind your, like your writing process. Um, I know you're, you're also a nonfiction writer. Uh, so just like in, in the case of a novel like this, um, like what would be your typical like schedule? And then, um, I'm, I'm always fascinated with, uh, um, different drafts, like how many versions would you might, would you go through to get to where you're like, okay, I think I'm done with this. I'm, I'm happy with this. Yes. I would love to talk about that because it's taking me years to come up with a system that works for me <laughs> and what works for me, of course, may not work for others. That's the beauty of writing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, some people like writing at night, some early in the morning, uh, everyone has their own work habits, but you mentioned my nonfiction writing. I do feel that my nonfiction writing, because my first book I sold, which was in 2012, it was a book about 
my experiences growing up, it was almost kind of part memoir, part um, compendium or history of the LA Dodgers. Hmm. Because I grew up listening to Vince Scully, the legendary broadcaster who retired just a few years ago. And I fell in love with baseball because of Vince Scully. So I wrote this book. It just flowed out of me. I had these tapes that I recorded off the radio when I was a kid of Vince Scully and the announcers calling Dodger games. This was when I was, my God, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I saved those recordings. And then I, I basically transcribed them. And uh, I, I digitized them to MP3s. They were falling apart after like 30 years. But those recordings form the basis of my first nonfiction book. And um, I found it very uh, fun to write that. And so I engaged in a, another nonfiction book or two. But I always wanted to write novels. I was still a fiction writer at heart, I, f- I felt like, or at least equally. Um, and in the midst of all this, I had a career going on in television, which I still do. Mm-hmm. And in TV, you are writing nonfiction. Um, I'm in the I'm in the nonfiction world. I don't write teleplays, screenplays. I don't work in the scripted world. And so I primarily do documentaries where you have to write voiceover, or you've got to, you know, like anything, you have to write um, to a tease. You have to write to a commercial break that will keep people interested. And so that whole world of nonfiction helped me write fiction in a way that I was always writing toward the next chapter, because. We're, you know, TV teaches you to be prolific. There's quick turnarounds, quick deadlines. There's not a lot of time for like navel gazing and <laughs> thinking too much. You know, you have to be really prolific. And I found that writing to those commercial breaks helped me in my fiction writing, writing to cliffhangers to, you know, keep people turning the page in the next chapter. So once I was able to start really writing for television, that helped my fiction writing. And I was able to set quotas for myself. So um, as with TV, you have to write everything out ahead of time as a treatment. And you have to have, you have to know where you're going. And you, if you've got all your material in hand and you've shot, even if it's nonfiction, you have to know how it's going to edit. And you have to have ideas of how a seven act show will be laid out over one hour. And so I treated that uh, kind of the same way with my fiction writing. I wanted a really solid outline that sometimes for me could be 20,000 words or so. Like I wanna make sure it's really fleshed out and I know where I'm going with it. And there's still some mystery as to some subplots or how am I gonna tie this up? But the general foundation is there. I know what my three major acts will be, what the turning point will be at the end of act one and the end of act two. And then as I learned in film school, you know, every screenplay should have, you know, the second act culmination. And you know, there's tons of books out there that break down screenwriting or novel making writing. And um, so once I feel like I've got that foundation laid out and outline, then I start, I commit to writing. And that's the fun part for me. That is such a joy. And I won't commence anything unless I feel it would be a joy to write because it shouldn't feel like drudgery. And, and so then I can kind of, I set a quota for like a thousand words a day. Mm-hmm. And I like that kind of structure. I work well in the morning especially if I'm not on a job, I will be able to uh, um, get in a few hours when my brain is at its freshest and maybe write again in the afternoon and not too much at night because I, I might start planning my next day's outlines or figuring out where I want to go with it or reading what I just wrote for that day. So that will be a process sometimes as little as three to four months. And I think with Paradise Palms, I did write it primarily from, I think it was like November to February or March of 2019 to 2020. 
uh, or maybe it was even a little earlier than that. But it was like a four or five month uh, period where the bulk of it, what you see in the final product, probably 80% of it or so was in that first draft. Oh, wow. That's great. Um, yeah, that's one thing I, I was going to say. It is kind of like I, books. I, I have a love-hate relationship with with books that I that I'm really into reading because I'm a, I'm a high school teacher and so I only have time to read at night and then I got to wake up super early. So when I find um, like a, a book that I'm reading and if it kind of forces me to stay up like two or three chapters past what I was planning on, um, like that's a good thing. I mean, it's, it's a good book, but then I'm like shot in the morning, but your book was definitely one of those books that kept me up um, because you did end on a cliffhanger and like pretty much every, every chapter there, which was great. Um, it's great to keep the, you know, the, the reader going. And that's what it definitely had that effect on me. Oh, well, um, insomnia is always a goal of mine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> With the reader. we got to torture our, our readers in a way, but yeah, <laughs> no, it's a point being it like, it was awesome. And as I was reading it, I'm like, man, this would be a, a great series, a great TV series. I could totally see this because it has that ensemble cast. Um, and yeah, and I, I just I yeah. love the period piece. Any idea, any thoughts of like um, developing developing this into a TV series at some point, or moving on to the next book? Is that kind of the plan? I was going to maybe move on to even um, a, another book involving the same family, so it'd be Paradise cool. Bombs: Colin, something else. And I still may do that, but to your point, um, even like Kirkus reviews and 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 other reviewers and and even non professional reviewers like readers. They all say very similar things to what you did, which I can really visualize this. I could see this as a yeah. series, you know, like a Netflix series. I wouldn't say that was my intent going in. I was probably just informed by my love of movies and TV, you know, and mm. and I do agree with you. There is some, I think there is some rich possibilities there. Uh, I would consider uh, writing uh, at least a pitch or a, a, a pilot for it. Um, I, I have entertained that. It is something I've done in the past that when I've explored the scripted world, I haven't had that much success with it, but I always enjoy writing screenplays. And yeah, that is, it would be nice to see that as another um, incarnation of it. Yeah, that would be cool. I mean, I love the, I love a, like a good book with family dynamics that kind of just yeah. like all the different brothers and just like how they interact and, you know, they can get frustrated, but there's like a lot of love there and they're, they're out to help each other. So I just, I just love the fam, the family story. Um, in this book. Thank you. Yeah. You know, what's an interesting, we are talking about Netflix, but an, an interesting Netflix series that I realized maybe I was subconsciously thinking about was, uh, is bloodline. Oh uh, yeah. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. Bloodline is, you know, yeah. family trying to keep their hotel together in Key West. It's set in the present, um, totally different, you know, situation. And, um, but that I would love that series and, and love the Godfather and, and, you know, anything else where there's uh, siblings that are um, struggling, not just with an external force, but uh, the family dynamics or even not with each other, but with a conflict within themselves, because as you know, one of the siblings in, in the book is struggling with his uh, gender identity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you deal with that in the 1950s <laughs> and buried yeah. with three kids? And so there were just so many layers to peel back when you do have the family dy dynamic. Yeah, no, Godfather kind of was popped into my head. I, I got a, like a feel, yeah. even though it isn't like the family's, you know, it's it's a it's a different story completely. Um, but it had just like elements that reminded me, that, you know. Um, and 
yeah, and and the Godfather itself, you can go back to the great Greek tragedies. Those are all oh, yeah. about families and Oedipal complex, and you know, uh, Electra, and you know, like that, that. That's probably the basis of the best drama was the family unit for sure. You, know, you yeah. go back in time. I love it. <laughs> um, that. That yeah, that that makes me interested in, in hearing more about your your TV career, because um, I did you know I was reading that you um, that's kind of like your your day job type thing uh, is is working in television. Um, I'm just curious how I mean you, you're from Los Angeles. Uh, how did you get into the business um, early on? I I was a latecomer to TV. I didn't really start working in it until I was 28, which to me is late. <laughs> because I was um, determined to be the next, you know, wunderkind uh, director right out of USC film school, you know, best film school in the world. I, I had kind of an award-winning documentary that won a student Emmy when I was there and I was kind of riding this high and uh, I had meetings at Disney with Jeffrey Katzenberg and you're kind of the flavor of the of the month or at least of, of the next few days after you screen your film for the industry. And you get these reviews in, in a, a local periodical that was here, LA Weekly, and um, and lots of studios want to meet with you. And so I, I felt at that point I was going to be a filmmaker and I started writing screenplays that were very calculated. They did not come from a true place whatsoever. Um, and I read them now and I cringe. You know how it is when you read your early stuff. And it was really driven from my trying to predict the marketplace and just not from a, a true place, which it took me years for me to figure out how to write in a way that engages myself and comes from a more authentic place and where I'm not really worried about, you know, what's going to sell or not. Um, but at the time I was determined to direct. And then when no one was interested in my stuff, I went ahead and wrote a screenplay with a friend and we shot, directed, edited, Crank, uh, maxed out our credit cards. You know, we we did everything that you that a lot of filmmakers did with indie films in the nineties, mm -hmm. um, but without the success. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was staring at like you know mounds of debt and a film that really didn't go anywhere. Got into some minor film festivals you probably never heard of, but it certainly didn't launch my career as a director in movies. And so getting in TV was me lessening my vision. Maybe lessening's not the right word, but mitigating it or or just channeling it into another medium. Mm -hmm. And I realized that uh, that that documentary film that I did at USC that I mentioned that was kind of I realized was kind of my trump card that I could always play to get a TV job. Mm -hmm. And because TV, I knew nonfiction, the world of nonfiction was probably where I was going to end up. And I, I had done documentaries as an undergraduate, and I worked on a newspaper staff in high school. And like I, I've always liked telling stories, real stories. So I showed that to um, some a place I was looking for an associate producer, and it was the E Network back before the pre the pre Kardashian Kardashian era. <laughs> it was mostly about Hollywood and and stories about fashion and um, interview stories and things like that, interview series. And they hired me just on the basis of that. And I had no television experience and they just kind of threw me right into the frying pan. And I had to turn around a show in about a week and write it and, and help direct it. And I was thrilled, but I was also like a, a lost, scared puppy. <laughs> I just had no concept of how to make TV. And so luckily there was some really good mentors and people who took me under their wing. And, um, and I've been working in TV ever since. It's been a 25 year run since then. 
So that was it. it was uh, by the late by my late twenties, I realized my day job was going to be television and nonfiction TV. Great. Well, I I used to watch E all the time, and like the I'm thinking late nineties, early two thousands. So I, you know, if you had a part to do with what what I was watching, I enjoyed it. It was like it was entertaining and. <laughs> Yeah, we that, called yeah. it e-university at the time because that <laughs> a lot of young people, we were all trying different things. And if if your show ended, they would just throw you on another show. Mm. I, I was staffed there back when, people, you know, there were staff jobs. And I was there almost six years when I first started out. That was a long run. And I got to try my hand at everything. And, um, you know, I worked in for e-news for a little bit. I did these specials. I traveled the world. I shot in China. Uh, India. I did behind the scenes of uh, like bands playing, and I did. I worked on the Wild On series with Jules Asner and Brooke Burke. Um, so it was it was a good run, and I got a lot of experience trying different formats. We did a game show at one point, and I felt I was versed enough in all these formats to then leave the nest and go into the real world and really challenge myself more as a writer and producer. And so, like in two thousand one, I left there maybe it's 2000 to uh, work at VH1. They had an opening for someone supervising a show. And then I just parlayed all that into these different showrunner jobs and uh, became more or less a freelancer for hire at that point. Mm -hmm. And there were some forays into network executive jobs. I was uh, briefly the um, vice president of development and programming at uh, a startup network, which is still on the air called Reels Channel, which interesting story there, by the way, I don't know how dated this will be uh, when this airs, but people will still be talking about it. But, you know, the whole Mike Richards fiasco yeah. with Jeopardy. Yeah. Uh, he was reading the news. We had a daily news show at uh, Reels Channel, and he was our host. Hmm. Uh, and it was um, Hollywood News, and he was very good. I really liked him. and I was technically his boss. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> but I, I found him very likable. And then they kind of, the network uh, downsized and moved to New Mexico. And I was kind of thrown back into the freelance showrunner world at that point uh, in 2008. And he went into game shows and I just continued doing documentaries and things like that. So it was interesting how your paths will cross with people are in the news later. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, such a, such a crazy business. Um, yeah, it unlike, is. unlike any other. Um, so I, I did want to talk, you have a book I, I and I got to get this book, a book on walking Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to hear about that because that's one thing when, when I'm writing, um, I go for a lot of walks when I'm stuck, I take my dogs for walks. So I walk all over Salt Lake city. Um, so I'm just, I'm just curious to hear about it because I think most people would probably think of LA as not a walking city. Um, so I would love to hear about the concept of the book and, you know, you know, just maybe, maybe what it's about exactly for people who, um, are in Los Angeles and maybe should be walking a little more. <laughs> oh, sure. I, I'm a staunch apologist for Los Angeles and walking. Um, <laughs> I would argue it is one of the more walkable cities in America. And I base that on the fact that it's got a great climate. Uh, it has a lot of hills that are reachable within, um, you know, a quick bus ride or car drive. You're in Griffith Park, which is uh, the main hilly park that's 4,000 acres that cuts the city in half, basically. So it's reachable from the valley and from the main basin of LA. And um, it's the largest city park in the nation, even, you know, much bigger than Central Park. So uh, a lot of my walks are through nature, but then a lot of them are, 
are through urban areas because that's the other reason LA is great. It's such a melting pot. You've got so many diverse neighborhoods. And then when you take these walks, I kind of point out different classic places you can eat at, uh, you know, different places you can go with your dog. If you do take your dog and my dog is kind of the star of the book. There's a lot of pictures <laughs> of him. Um, and I, I also felt that um, it was a, Really, the, the, the name of the book is 10,000 Steps a Day in L.A., 57 Walking Adventures. And the, the reason I, I pinpointed or rooted it in 10,000 Steps is that's, that's, uh, that's a number a lot of people try to achieve on their pedometers or with their Apple phones or whatever app you have. Um, and that equates to five miles for the average person. And that's something you can usually do in two, two to three hours. So these are kind of weekend walks, really. And not necessarily things you can do before work, unless <laughs> you get up really early. Yeah. Um, so for a lot of people, um, it works if they want to go to a different part of the city and they've always want to know how to explore that part of the city. Well, you know, I'll take you to, you know, Boyle Heights or Pacific Palisades or wh wherever that section is, that neighborhood, and kind of give you the greatest hits version of that. And so when you're reading the book and doing the walk, it's, I like to equate it to like when you're taking the tram ride in Universal Studios and uh, the driver or, you know, the, the person behind the mic is pointing out all these different sound stages and, oh, this was shot there. And they're giving me the whole rundown on, on the tram ride. And that's what it's like. I even wanted that same kind of cheeky tone as you're reading the book. And it's kind of like sneaky learning. You know, you're learning <laughs> about LA, but you're also getting your steps in. And in the end, you know, it's not even about the exercise. It's about exploring the city and learning more about it. I love it. I, I got to get a copy before I'm down there next time. So I, when I, when I was there last, I did a pretty interesting walk, but I was just, I didn't, I knew where I was going. I like on a map, I knew where I was going, but I had never walked it. So I was up in Beechwood Canyon, kind of looking at the, the, the steps that go up there. And yeah. so I, I walked from there all the way back to my hotel in um, East Hollywood and so it was kind of cool just seeing the shift in the neighborhood, like how, how it does like changes. Um, and when you're driving, it's just so, so fast and you're, you know, you're not paying attention, but you know, I driven those streets many, many times when I'm, when I'm visiting there. Um, but actually physically walking it, I just saw so much more and it was honestly my favorite point of that trip. And it was, you know, it was, I forget how long it took me, but it was like, it was, it was a good walk, you know? It took me a while. Yeah, and, and you point out that there is no one epitome or um, archetypal uh, neighborhood in Los Angeles. There's so much change. Like, if you just drive the city from one point to the next, you experience so many different neighborhoods, and they're also different from one another. And that there's that famous quote, uh, uh, you know, there there is no there there. Um which is that was in reference to Oakland, but it does apply to LA because it doesn't have like a, a central defining city other than downtown or a feature to it, you know, because it is so the landscape is so diverse and the neighborhoods are so different from one another. And I, I like that idea of, um, you know, finding that niche that you like and exploring different sections, different ethnic uh, uh, food and, and um, different culture and just learning, but then there is a unifying aspect also to when you do these walks that you realize Los Angeles, yeah, it's got these disparate neighborhoods, but there's also something cohesive about how it all works. Yeah. Yeah. It's so unique. I mean, it's, you know, it's unlike any, any city. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's cool. I would like to hear about, since you, you, you grew up there, I don't meet a lot of people who are actually from 
that I know a lot of people who've moved there, but I don't know a lot of people from Los Angeles. So I would just love to hear about, you know, kind of your, your background as far as growing up, like the, the area you grew up in and, you know, just um, your experience um, in that time period that you grew up. Yeah, well, I was born in the same hospital that Judy Garland was born in. Uh, I was born in Hollywood. It was called the the Hospital of the Stars at the time, <laughs> um, Cedars of Lebanon, and then it eventually uh, became a Scientology building, which um, many old buildings in Hollywood are. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but then you know, I but I grew up in a neighborhood called Beverly Crest, which is um, it's just outside of Beverly Hills, and it's kind of near Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm you know, like the movie <laughs> and, um, off Coldwater Canyon. It, it, my mother has lived in the same house for 57 years. Uh, my dad who passed, you know, just a few years ago that that was their, that was the house I grew up in. And it's in a Canyon that didn't feel like a big city when I was little, there would be deer on our hillside. It felt like a smaller city to me, at least early on. And I could just explore the Hills behind our house. I was, uh, you know, it was a typical seventies, uh, upbringing where I just had to be had, I had to be back by dinner time. Mm-hmm. And so me and my siblings would just explore the Hills behind our house or go skateboarding down to our friend's house. And it was a really a joyous experience growing up in that kind of countryfied. Um, that's the thing, you know, I like people forget that Los Angeles has a lot of Hills. So these were hillsides. This is the Santa Monica mountains. And, um, there was a lot of undeveloped land behind our house, um, which is still that way. Some of it now are these gigantic homes that are over $10 million. It's become like a subdivided gated community. Uh, but at the time it was just uh, wildland and we would go for these, uh, go on these amazing hikes. So that was, that was cool. Um, but it was, we were very car reliant. You know, I would have to drive everywhere once I got my license that's when I started exploring Hollywood and other parts of the city that I was unaware of. I was mostly a West LA guy. So my hang was like Brentwood, um, Santa Monica, Pacific Palisades, Westwood, uh, Beverly Hills. We would ride our bikes into Beverly Hills when it was still kind of a sleepy village before Rodeo Drive. You know, it was really the 1980s where it all turned and there was, it, it achieved the reputation that it does today. But in the seventies, when I was starting to ride my bike there, there was like a food giant store and the five and dime, and there was a radio shack and, uh, you know, it, it had a very kind of small town feel to it. So, uh, and there were train tracks going through and there was a freight train blowing its whistle all the time. And you'd smell the, the, the bread baking from wonder, wonder bread bakery, which was in Beverly Hills at the time. And that's now the civic center there. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was. It was kind of the last, um, you know, I, I talked about the end of innocence in the fifties, but this really was the end of the small town era of not just Beverly Hills, but studio city and a lot of parts of the Valley where there's mm-hmm. more horses or, you know, there's, there's a giant mall in uh, outside Beverly Hills now called the Beverly center that used to have an amusement park called Beverly park. And that's where I'd go for my birthday all the time. And it was just a small little amusement park with oil wells pumping next to it. Um, you know, and so it's, people are shocked to see pictures of that and all that kind of ended by the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. That's kind of what I was, I was wondering because, um, it just, you just talking about, um, how different it was. Cause we, we have that perception, especially if you haven't really been there, but you see it in TV and movies of Beverly Hills in that area. And you have a very like, 
uh, kind of a narrow idea of what what that place is. But I remember when I was a teenager, I used to correspond. I was, you know, like I said, I was really into old Hollywood. I would, I was uh, writing, and I visited him several times with my dad. Uh, he was an old uh, B movie director and writer. Um, so he wrote a lot, he wrote a lot of, uh, like horror films and he worked on three stooges shorts. Um, and he, he actually came, he's from Chicago. He came to LA, um, when sound came to movies and they needed, uh, he worked at a, you know, radio, um, uh, back in Chicago. So they needed sound men to like, kind of, you know, figure out <laughs> how to do sound in, uh, in yeah. movies. So he came out as a young man. Um, and when he bought his home, he was telling me, uh, cause he, he was living in the home that he had bought, like, uh, I don't even know when it was, I want to say 1930s, forties. And it was, um, it was in Van Nuys. And so he said, I was looking at this home and then there's another home in Beverly Hills. And in my mind, like, especially seeing the neighborhood of what it had turned into where he lived now, it's like anything but Beverly Hills. So it just was kind of fascinating that like how much an area can change where in his mind, it was like they were very comparable in a lot of respects back in like the 1930s or whatever. You sure. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And it was affordable when my parents bought their home. And again, we lived just outside the city limits, but there was an interesting thing that happened there. Um, our, well, first of all, it, on the more national landscape, Beverly Hills cop. And that came out it was like 1984. <laughs> I mean, there was no turning back by that point. Right? That's when <laughs> Beverly Hills and, and all of it's like obscene wealth was being, because it was the eighties, it was starting to be celebrated at that point. And then in the nineties, Beverly Hills, 90210 came out TV series, right? Hugely popular Aaron spelling. Well, on my license, if you looked at my license when I was a newly licensed driver and up through really went until I moved to Hollywood and in, in after college, my license had 90210 as the zip code. Mm -hmm. And that's because even though I didn't live in the city limits, uh, the Beverly Crest area of Los Angeles, where I lived, um, we would get our mail delivered to us from the Beverly Hills post office. And so it was called Beverly Hills post office also where we lived or Beverly Hills adjacent. Um, it's just this weird quirk where their fire department would come up to our house if there was a problem. Um, we, we would, our, our zip code was 90210. Yet I couldn't go to Beverly High, which was a superior high school because I didn't live in the city limits. Uh -huh. But the cool thing was having that 90210 on my driver's license when the show came out. <laughs> by that point, um, I was in my 20s and I was all too ready to revel in my celebrity. And I would go to bars. My, a friend and I did a cross-country trip when that show was at its peak. And I would have to show my ID at bars and people would take a step back. The bartender's <laughs> like, whoa, you live in 90210? I'm like, yeah. Like, hey, drinks on me, buddy. <laughs> and it kind of like was a good conversation starter with girls and everything. And so I, awesome. I got to ride the wave of that show for a few years. <laughs> That's incredible. I love yeah. it. I love it. Without actually living, I felt like a poser because I didn't really live in Beverly Hills. They didn't know. They don't know. They didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, what kind of like, so I always like talking to writers and, you know, filmmakers about like what, like, what are the things they were into when they were kind of like, like, oh, the finding new, um, new books and new movies and, you know, new to them. I mean, yeah, um, it's always kind of cool when you go through that period, usually in your teens, where you start like a whole new world opens up. So yeah. I would love to hear about some of the the stuff that you got into um, that kind of shaped your love of of writing 
and um, of film? Yeah, um, I, for me, it was, well, if you, you, you're most interested like in the film world, right? Like what got me into um, TV and film? Or was it writing in general? You know, honestly, like this, this uh, podcast actually started with authors. Um, yeah. And then it's like, it's done, a, it's kind of like turned into doing a lot of film. But I would say when I was young, when I was a teenager, I was initially into film. And then I got into um, like books, novels yeah. um, later. Like I would say in my mid twenties is when I actually started reading a lot. So I was okay. a little, little late with books, but like film has always been my kind of thing um, from a younger age. I think I was probably the opposite uh, of your experience. I can't explain to this day why this is in terms of why I, I was this self-possessed writer as a kid. But early on, like when I was five years old, I loved nothing better than to create books. And they were just stories that I imagined. They could be comic books, maze books. I did a, a world atlas creating worlds that only I could imagine. I was just writing these things with pen to paper. I would staple the blank pages together. I was very excited by the blank page. And then I would write these books. It would sometimes take months. And I did dozens of them. And I would share them with my family and my friends up to like I was probably 12, 13 years old. And um, it was kind of a good exercise to, you know, gave me um, a good discipline that I would then carry with me through adulthood. So in some ways, I was training myself to be a writer. And these were like, I took it very seriously. These books had table of contents and they had at indexes in the back because I was obsessed by indexes in books. It was, it was almost kind of like autistic in the level of <laughs> devotion to it. And then uh, my dad would always uh, get a big kick out of, uh, I would always say on the title page, you know, written by Paul Haddad, illustrated by Paul Haddad, published by Paul Haddad. He, you know, he, he loved my e my kind of like uh, out of control ego mm -hmm. when I was seven, just stamping my name all over the <laughs> um, So I was writing these books and then, concurrent to that or a little later we got uh, an early version of hbo in la it was called z channel it was exclusive only to the los angeles area and they were showing r-rated movies the best era of cinema which was like 1970s hollywood and um those those who just i would watch them just amazed at the um you know the level of filmmaking without really understanding what I was seeing, but appreciating them later. And I would watch them over and over because they were being repeated throughout the week. And then by the eighties, I was recording them off, uh, you know, a VCR player that we had, we had a Betamax, then we went to VHS and my brother and I would watch these movies over and over. And I turned my love of story and my obsessions with it into a more visual medium and started to understand which directors were doing what that was kind of the next level. And um, I would say by the time I was finishing high school in 1984, I knew I wanted to be a film director. And we were also doing our own little home videos because we got a really crude early home video camera that was actually tethered to the Betamax machine. You couldn't even take it outside the house, <laughs> which forced us to be more creative. And, yeah. and we were really resourceful with what we could do. So I think, um, you know, that's having that channel, the Z channel, and there's been a great documentary on it. Oh, I really? Called, I think it's called a magnificent obsession okay. and it's definitely worth checking out because Z channel was the first platform to really affect the votes of Oscar voters. And many people think that Annie Hall, for example, won the Oscar in 1977 because they were running that film constantly while shortly afterwards in theaters, hmm. but before the Oscars and before you submitted your ballots. And so a lot of 
people on the West side, Beverly Hills and Bel Air and, and uh, Brentwood, they were watching Annie Hall over and over on Z channel. And it helped. It's almost like early versions of sending a DVD screener to people. Mm-hmm. And so um, that might've influenced uh, it winning the best uh, movie Oscar. Um, so, you know, that was um, that it certainly had an influence on me as well. That's interesting. No, cause I I've heard of the, the Z channel um, on, I listen to Brett Easton Ellis's podcast occasionally, and he he's yeah. always talking, or he mentions Z Channel a lot, and just like the way he like speaks so adoringly of it, it just sounds such like such a cool um, thing that I was like so jealous of. I'm like, man, I wish I had that um, when I was growing up in in Utah. But uh, yeah, that sounds so cool. So yeah, I'd love to find that documentary. Yeah, it's called Z Channel: A Magnificent Obsession, and really, what was great also about it was it was well curated. They didn't necessarily set up each movie. They would just start playing at the given time. Mm-hmm. But the guide that they would send each month, I would just, I would read that from front to back. And there was a FX Feeney, I think his name was, and Charles Champlin. There were these great critics who would write up capsules about the movies and they would really do a deep dive into them. And sometimes they would set up intros later on as I was watching Z Channel, they incorporated that. So it was like an early version of T, um, uh, Turner Classic Movies mm-hmm. for cinephiles, but you know, for only people who live in Los Angeles. So it definitely had an influence on me in terms of giving context to the movies also and, and teaching me about foreign movies and also learning the canons of these different directors. Yeah. No, yeah. that that's cool. It reminds me, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there when it was on, but like um, Criterion Channel, that's like something I, I love coming to and, um, I learned so much, you know, so it's just like, it's overwhelming the amount of like incredible films on there. And, um, you just kind of, you know, mostly a lot of older stuff, but like, um, I'm kind of just, I'm like focusing on watching like 1970s films. Cause I think a lot of them, besides like the huge ones, like taxi driver and different ones like that, I think a lot of them, um, I'm just not aware of. So, um, yeah. I was born, I was born in 81 um, so it's kind of cool going back and it's so true. It's like, wow, they, they, they made movies like this, you know, I know. Um, it's incredible. So, I mean, it is so, uh, different what I thought. I thought, oh, they might be cheesy when I first started watching movies from, them. and there are, you know, of course, like in any decade, but, um, just like that decade was special with, it was with, with stuff. <laughs> yeah. And most of those movies probably wouldn't get made now, you know, because they're not tentpole movies. They're not based off Marvel characters. <laughs> It's not reaching a wide enough audience. These were movies for adults. Mm-hmm. And to your point, they really hold up. The 70s ones in particular, I think because they're just, there's a rawness and a grittiness to it. And um, even a great filmmaker like William Friedkin, when you watch The French Connection, it really holds up. It's got that famous chase scene, uh, you know, under the elevated train. And I just recently saw his movie from 1985, uh, To Live and Die in L.A., mm-hmm. And that thing is dated as all hell. Yeah, you know? So it's like it's funny, the more recent movies, like his 80s, even some 90s stuff, a lot more dated than the stuff from the 70s. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of it was the Wang Chung soundtrack and big snare drums and synth music and all that. And and just these garish pastel colors and everything. The, the whole palette was just screened 80s, right? And just like when you hear music from the 80s, you can just nail that era. But like a lot of fashion, music and movies, the 70s stuff kind of holds up better. Because it's there is a naturalism to really good TV now, mm-hmm. and and you know indie movies at least maybe some <laughs> mainstream ones that is more in line with the '70s sensibility, 
And I think that the, uh, the endurance of 70s cinema is going to outlast other eras. I think it's always going to be a special time. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally. Um, maybe as we, we, we kind of wrap up uh, today, I w- I'd like to hear, um, I'm kind of interested in talking to people about their their experience from a professional setting with the pandemic. Like how has it impacted their their work? I know like with, uh, with a lot of writers I've talked to um, who are like writing a novel or whatever, uh, it, it's almost like one of two directions. So like some people like, well, it didn't really impact my, my daily schedule. You know, I'm kind of writing whatever and actually was able to write more. And then I had other people who um, kind of hit a brick wall and kind of like froze with creating things. Um, and, 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 you know, with film, since you work in um, TV and film, um, it, like huge challenges there as well. Yeah. I mean, kind of, kind of out of your control at that point, but I am kind of curious uh, the, the last year and a half or so, like your experience with um, dealing with this monster of a thing. Yeah, I remember really well because I was working on a TV show that was wrapping up at the end of February, a couple of weeks before everything shut down. <laughs> I hadn't realized that would be the last uh, uh, week of work for some time for me at the, at the time. Um, and I was also wrapping up Paradise Palms. I had, um, I think, delivered... I think I, by that point, I got my publisher, uh, Black Black Rose Writing, who published the book, and I just made a deal with them, and so I was very excited about that. And then uh, the pandemic hit, and we went into, you know, everything shut down, and um, then I I didn't really work again in TV until later in the year. It's really kind of by September October, so I had uh, about a seven or eight month period there, where. Um, in retrospect, I realized it was the most, one of the most productive times of my life. Mm-hmm. So I went in the direction of, I can't really do much. I can't really go anywhere. My happy place is always my desk and writing. Mm-hmm. I can certainly do that now. And it allowed me also to escape just all the hysteria and the paranoia that was out there. And we were all afraid to walk outside. And it was a very stressful time. But I found that when I was in front of my desk and I was sort of cultivating these ideas, I definitely, it made me forget about the troubles in the world. And um, then I just stumbled on an idea for a book that just, I had like this epiphany in April for a nonfiction book, which was the history of LA's freeways. Mm, that was another wow. obsession of mine when I was a kid was I, I, I love maps and the freeways. And uh, I started just researching this and realized there had never been a book about LA's freeways. Really? Uh, yeah, there was one written in the early eighties, more from an academic standpoint, And then freeways are kind of written in bigger books about LA, like City of Courts by Mike Davis, great book. And it's these touchstones talking about Los Angeles, like urban history, but never exclusively about the freeways and how the freeways are really these metaphors for the growth of Los Angeles and they informed one another. And you can tell the story of LA by telling the story of its freeways. And I pitched this to the same publisher who did 10,000 Steps a Day in LA and my Dodger book. He loved it. And by late April, I was diving into that as my next project. And I just went down the rabbit hole. So I was able to escape the pandemic by just staying at home, doing this deep dive research and, and even going out and shooting pictures when I needed to of freeways, which were empty at the time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was, So it was a perfect time to be on the freeways. And I just threw myself into that. And in the end, I was very grateful for the time that I didn't spend it worrying that I didn't spend it freaking out and 
and being um, immobilized by all the worry that we all had. I was trying to just override that by just doing a little writing each day. And I think I started writing the, the rough draft by the summer and I had it all kind of done by September. Um, it, the bulk of it, again, I'm, I'm usually operating in a three to four month window because once I start a project, I'm all in. Mm -hmm. And, and that was looking back, it was, uh, nice to have been productive and not have wasted that time because I would have really been kicking myself because it's really easy to, you know, worry and spend a lot of time fretting. And, and I thought, well, in lieu of that, how about I just work on this? And once, once I knew I had sold it in April, it was very easy just to focus on that. That's so cool. Um, yeah, because when I'm reading Paradise Palms, it does it talks. You know, there's a little bit about the freeways and like yeah. oh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna put it in here or there. There, these are some options. And I had never really, I mean, just kind of, you know, because I wasn't around at the time. I wasn't born yet. I'm thinking about this. I'm like, yeah, there weren't always freeways there, of course. But um, I had that idea of like, man, that has really shifted. I'm sure the the history of of Los Angeles, like where the placement of freeways were and when they were added on to. So that's so exciting yeah. that you have a book um, about that. I can't wait to read that. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah. I think uh, the book, when this, when this podcast airs, that's around the time the book will be coming out. It's oh. coming out in October. It's called Freewaytopia, how oh, freeway wow. shaped Los Angeles. Excellent. Yeah. So this is the, it just by a <laughs> lucky use, uh, I mean, it's really just dumb luck that I had two books coming out this year. So yeah. Paradise Palms came out in July and and, and uh, this one, the Freeway books come out in October. And, um, and Paradise Palms actually occupied a lot of my time during the pandemic as well, because I was having to do other drafts and I was working with the copy editor and uh, um, that process of, uh, you know, trying to figure out marking and everything that that took up uh, some of last year as well. So I was and ironically, I had not been that busy in some time as I was during the pandemic. Yeah. And like you said, it's probably, you know, it's a good thing because it yeah. left to our own devices. I know I was kind of like pulled out of the plug from my normal schedule and you do get in your own head and spend too much time on social media and start yeah. going crazy. Uh, so yeah, that's good that you're able to you, kind you of- know, You know, you raise a, good, raise a good point. I don't know how many listeners are, are wanting to write or they're intimidated by the process. And social media, you just nailed it. Social media is important, certainly to publicize your work, and it's mm -hmm. good to engage with your readers or just with other people. I'm I'm not against social media, but I you, it's amazing. You know, so many people say, "Well, how do you find the time to write?" You know, especially when you're working a full time job or you're raising a family. And to me, the short answer is get off social media as much as you can. <laughs> yeah, because you know the amount of time we spend on that, you could be you know, writing your outline, just chiseling away at your book, writing, you know, a couple pages, even setting a quote of, you know, 300, 400 words, you know, starting modestly, that's, you know, maybe an hour or two that you might've been on social media and you add it all up and that can make a difference. Um, so yeah, I, I was tempted many times, especially when we were trying to track what was going on with COVID and everything. It was uh, hard to stay away from social media, but I, I was, like I said, my writing, once I devote the hours to it, I, I hold to a pretty disciplined schedule. And then I would allow time to go down the rabbit hole of social media, <laughs> paranoia at a certain time, you know, seven o'clock when I'm done. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's one of the keys for me is to 
Um, I don't have any of those programs where you can shut them off your computer. I know there's, there's those as well to help yeah. you focus. I can usually focus because I'm more excited to be working on my book than I would yeah. be anything I'd find on social media. No, and it's, it, it's true. It's like, it's amazing how much you can get done with, and just like it, if you do an hour or two consistently, you know, where that becomes yeah. part of your schedule, it's, it's incredible how much, um, work you can actually accomplish yeah, in, that, in mean, that time period. You're just, you're building a house. It's just brick by brick, you know, and houses don't go up overnight, but you know, uh, you got to show up at the construction site every day, right? You got to lay the pipes, you got to, yeah. you know, put the bricks down and, and, um, you know, consult your, go back to your outline, your blueprint as it were. And, and, um, you know, it'll take a few months, but you'll get there. The next thing you know, you've got a house and, um, you know, that won't happen if you're just like, uh, uh, you know, hanging out in the park and, you know, uh, just chilling with your, with your buds and and not really like applying yourself. So that's the kind of the social media is the equivalent of that to me. Yeah, no, it's so true. Yeah. There's great advice for like, cause I have talked to um, email exchanges with some listeners and I think that's a, that's a big thing they like hearing about like how writers like their, their process and just like, I mean, you hit it on the head, just kind of like people can feel and I, even me, myself, I'm working on my first book right now. And it's like, there's that uh, intimidation factor when you are, you know, doing it, especially for the first time, because it's like, you know, I know there is maybe no right or wrong way, but you can get in your head very easily. Oh, yeah. Like the Self-doubt. Doubt, yep, yep. All that. Yeah. You, you, there, there is a big leap of faith and that you have to really believe what you're doing is, yeah, is going to work and people want to read it. I, I, I doubt myself all the time. And uh but I find if I could push through it and, and I feel that it's working, um, you know, then, you know, it, it, to me, the bigger leap of faith, frankly, is doing a novel because with my freeway book, I sold my publisher on the idea first mm-hmm. and the sample chapter. I wrote one up, you know, that took like a week. Um, but with a novel, typically you have to write the whole thing on spec, right? right? Yeah. And, uh-huh. and so that's very intimidating and you really have to believe in yourself then. Um, so I was, I remember like thinking, man, this better seller. I'm going to be really pissed <laughs> writing all this stuff. And, and to be honest, I didn't have many, uh, I didn't have any takers with, uh, literary agents. Mm-hmm. I, I just started targeting publishers that publish books like paradise palms and right. that process went a lot quicker. Yeah. And that's, that's another uh, piece of advice I would give to people is target publishers sometimes because it'll, sometimes you go straight to the source mm-hmm. and find those publishers who are putting out books similar to yours. And that's one way to lessen the angst and, and to sometimes get a, a quicker yes. Yeah. And there's so many, you know, there, there are so many like smaller publishers that don't like that don't, you, they don't need an agent necessarily. Like they're, they're a little more, more open to um, something like you said, I think we, we, I think we connected over chip, maybe chip Jacobs book. Uh-huh. Um, there was like probably similar, similar readership there. And so, yeah. Yeah. And those, as you said, those more boutique publishers, they'll look at writers who aren't represented mm-hmm. by an agent. And, uh, and I knew also, I knew my book wasn't for one of the, the, the big publishers in New York. So that kind of made it easy to target the more niche publishers. Yeah. I actually like, I actually, you know, I'll read, I'll read anything, but I, I tend to gravitate towards books like this anyways. Like I enjoy them more, just kind of my, Mm-hmm. my personal taste so it i mean i love that there is such a that there is a market for you know more 
stuff that it, like the big five or whatever aren't gonna you know necessarily be running pounding down the door to get so um i think these books are better personally so well, i'm with <laughs> you and I, i'm glad you feel that way otherwise there'd be no market for it so <laughs> there's, there's enough readers like you out there that uh it's like the the book equivalent of um of like an indie rock band you know yeah, yeah. um so that's cool I, I'm, I'm with you on that great well paul thank you so much for taking the time this was a really fun conversation i enjoyed it me too Thank you, Kyler. And, and that's so great that perfect timing that um, your next book is coming out in October. So this podcast will air um, right right around the time that that book comes out. We'll make sure we have links for all of that in um, in our descriptions here. So awesome. uh, can't wait to read that one. And and definitely people check out Paradise Palms. It's a great, great novel, um, especially if you like uh, 1950s Hollywood and the mob and different things like that. So yeah, thanks so much. And, and we'll be in touch. And this was a great conversation. Thank you, Kyler. <laughs> okay, take care.